I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In the middle of Church Street, in the heart of Toronto's gay village, there is a bar called Woody's. Woody's is a landmark. It's like cheers, but for gay people. It's empty now because of COVID, which is frankly unnatural, because usually this place is packed. Separate rooms, each with different music and events, sticky floors, a sticky bar, a narrow stage, and, reigning over it all, a framed portrait of one Michelle Dubarry. So the portrait of her hanging on the wall is a super glamorous photo. This is reporter Jeffrey Vallis, no stranger to Woody's. She's wearing the biggest crown I've ever seen. I mean, she's really literally dripping in diamonds. She has a massive encrusted tiara, huge diamond earrings, a massive diamond necklace, and a big diamond brooch. And she's wearing this beautiful red dress. And it's just, I mean, when you look at the photo, it really is classic Michelle Dubarry. So who exactly is she? AC, she's an icon. All rise for a Toronto legend. This is what Woody's would normally sound like in the before times, especially if Michelle was around. My name is Michelle DeBerry. I'm the queen of the village, actually. When I walk through the village, I get a lot of people saying hello and, and, and how are you? There, yeah, hello? Yeah, there we go. Am I on? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Michelle, for coming out tonight. You are a pillar of our community. Michelle Dubarry prefers the title icon, not legend. Legend sounds too old. Okay, the title says I'm the oldest in the world, yeah. Oh my God. Her latest distinction she received from Guinness World Records, oldest performing drag queen. Iconic, legendary, oldest. Whatever the title, she's earned it. And underneath it all, the makeup and the jewels and the gowns is a man who has been doing drag for nearly seven decades. I'm Russell Aldred right now, and I'm 89 years old. I, I, don't, I don't feel like 89, but I'm, I'm 89, yes. For Russell, all those rhinestones, wigs, and corsets, those late nights and lip syncs, they haven't been a part of his life for over a year now, since COVID shut it all down since COVID shut Michelle down. And now, Russell, the man behind Michelle, isn't sure he wants to perform ever again. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, we've got two stories of matriarchs whose art forms have created a world for their families, chosen and biological. Coming up, Guyin was a Cantonese opera singer. She sang her way into Canada in the 1930s during the era of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And she paved the way for her family to follow. 
I mean, her story is like a family legend. It's something that we talk a lot about. It's something that's like very ingrained in our family culture when we talk about our, our family and our history. But first, this is the story of an iconic drag queen, the man behind the makeup and a family rallying around their matriarch. Heads up, there is some expressive cussing in this story. Young ears be warned. All right, Jeffrey, we'll take it from here. I met Michelle last month in a park outside her apartment in the heart of Toronto's gay village. At the time, he was dressed as Russell Aldred. No wig, no makeup. Russell was wearing black pants and a red polo. He was decorated with flashy rings, bright red Sally Jesse Raphael-style glasses, and a lanyard to hold his keys. He finished the look with a faux fur coat for added warmth. Do we have a camera on us? No camera, no, just the audio. And why did I go through all this gorgeousness? Really? That took work? That's Russell's close friend, James Clark, sassing him on his look. <laughs> How many minutes did you spend on that look? Well, it takes a lot of time and money to look this good. Russell hasn't really been in drag since before the start of the pandemic. And more and more these days, that seems to be the norm, according to another one of his friends, Trevor Peary. I I think, too, before, almost when I would see Michelle, the default was Michelle. And it would kind of be Michelle unless, you know, otherwise noted. But now it's sort of changed. It's, It's Russell all the time. Now, if you're not already a fan of the reality show phenomenon RuPaul's Drag Race and don't know what it means to be a drag performer, here's your 30-second lesson. The library is open. Many drag artists identify as men, but present themselves in feminine ways as part of their performance. The drag artist typically has a drag persona, separate from the self they live as every day. They may also use a different name and pronouns when in drag. This doesn't mean drag queens are transgender, though there are trans drag performers too, and they don't necessarily keep their names or pronouns when not performing. So in Russell's case, he identifies as a man with male pronouns. And when he's in drag, he identifies as Michelle with female pronouns. But since Russell has been performing as Michelle DuBerry for nearly 70 years, the lines have become understandably blurred. Many of his friends, like James, refer to him as Michelle, whether he's in drag or not. I've always called Michelle, Michelle. I've always said Michelle's a she. Michelle's always Michelle to me. Together, James and Trevor make up Michelle's inner circle. I'm 32, Uh, Jamie is 60, and Michelle is 89, and they are my family. Trevor is Michelle's primary support person. He lives about a 30-minute walk from Michelle, and she calls him every day. Sometimes with questions, sometimes for help, and sometimes just to chat. He handles her bills, arranges her doctor's appointments, and even changes her light bulbs. I'm back. With light bulbs. Oh my god. Oh, it's a bulb? Yeah, there's two in this box, so we can... I'll, I'll, go, I'll get a chair. How about I get there? Something to stand on, yeah. 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 Much better, eh? To get to Michelle, you have to go through Trevor and James. But make no mistake, there's still just one person calling the shots. Michelle is the matriarch, obviously. And the patriarch, and everything in between. 
Yeah. I'm fucking old. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm oh, pardon me. I'm oh, sorry. I'm old. Yes. <laughs> so. Michelle's the boss. She's in charge. She says where she wants to go and when you want to do it and when you want to leave and what the what we're gonna have for lunch and everything. And she she runs the the show. Well, it makes me sound too much of a too much like a bitch yeah. if it was that bad we wouldn't be hanging out with you all the time it's uh you're just the boss <laughs> this multi-generational chosen family isn't unique in the lgbt community we often have a group of friends that act as a support system and who serve the same role that a bio family might for others aren't, aren't we both so lucky to have trevor yes uh, as a young friend i mean you've been put there for a reason you know What's that well, reason? one of the main reasons I'm I'm friends with Trevor is because he's 30 years younger, and I need someone to look after me when I get Michelle's age. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's nothing like better than a, an old drag queen like me yeah. to have Trevor, a young friend, Trevor. Of course, you know. We're just we're friends. It's just natural. It just seems right. But I guess we do help each other out. Um, so it's nice to hear that and know that it's um, it's it's felt. But. Yeah, I would do it, all this stuff, a thousand times over. It's very easy. For Michelle, James, and Trevor, it was friendship at first sight. James first met Michelle back in 2010 at Statler's, another bar in Toronto's Gay Village, which has unfortunately since closed. It was popular for live entertainment, including musical theater, open mics, and piano nights. You know, we were having a good evening watching the show. And um, we realized we had friends in common, and uh, then I also realized that my drag mother happens to be uh, Michelle's daughter. So Michelle's basically my grandmother. In the drag world, it's common for more experienced queens to take younger queens under their wing, to put them in drag for the first time, show them the ropes, and teach them their history. In other words, becoming drag mothers and daughters or in James and Michelle's case, drag grandmothers and granddaughters. And I was having such a good time that that's when I invited Trevor to come and meet Michelle. It was a couple years after James met Michelle that he invited Trevor to join them at an Imperial Court of Toronto event. The Court is a nonprofit organization that raises funds for queer charities through drag performances and social events. Trevor was 24 and, surrounded by Toronto's most glamorous queens, was definitely wearing the least amount of jewels in the room. I guess the first time I saw Michelle, I like I'd never been to a drag show like that before. And um, of course, to see Michelle, this kind of beautiful creature all done up. And it's right, these people are done in jewels and crowns and, and things. It's not, you know, a regular night out. But I, I won't forget that first time, just being like, where am I? Who are these people? From that moment forward, it sort of was the Three Musketeers. We were just doing all the events together. We were having such a good time. Their good times would often include dinners, drag shows, and club hopping in the village. And Michelle was always the star of the show. When Michelle is Michelle, she's on, and she's like Marilyn Monroe, and she's walking down the street, and, you know, you just can't go anywhere quick because, you know, everyone's talking... Everybody wants pictures. That's like walking down the street with Hollywood royalty. She's beloved by bookers and bar owners. 
My name is Dean Odorico, and I'm the uh, manager, one of the managers at uh, Woody's on Church Street. When Mich- Michelle hits the stage at Woody's, uh, everybody gets their wallet out and tips her because uh, she's very respected by her community, and she has a lot of a lot of friends and a lot of fans. And she's always dressed to the, the nines, always looks great. Uh, she's hosted uh, lots of fundraisers at Woody's. Um, raised money for all kinds of charities. So it's pretty amazing. She's a very important part of this community. And adored by other drag queens. My name is Carlotta Carlisle. I met Michelle DuBerry about 13 years ago. When I started doing drag, she was one of those names that you just inherently knew in the city. She had been around since cobblestones and horse and carriage. She's living proof that getting old is something that you choose. I mean, she is at an age where some people are sitting at home, knitting, doing nothing. And she chooses to be out. She chooses to be vibrant. She chooses to be full of life. I mean, you can see Michelle DuBerry out at least four nights a week in high glamour drag. Just supporting shows and making sure that everyone in the community is checked up on. She's wonderful that way. I cannot think of another queen in the city of Toronto who has supported other queens in the city of Toronto like Michelle DeBerry has. Uh, Michelle goes to the, used to go to the six to nine show every Sunday at Woody's and, you know, in full drag every Sunday, handing out $5 bills to every single performer. Well, I am an old mother, you know. Yeah. No, I I think that's very special and uh, incredibly unique. I, I don't know another queen in the city that has supported all the girls on this strip for all these years. They're all my children. (laughs) But without all the glitz and glamour, Michelle is just Russell. He's not as outgoing and, by the sounds of it, not as popular. Michelle is an icon, but Russell? He's an 89-year-old man who might as well be invisible in the village. I can tell you, at 60 years old, a lot of the people on Church Street don't even look at you anymore because you're past a certain age. James and Trevor tell me that Russell's resentment towards Michelle has been building for some time. Russell has been sleeping on a daybed in the living room for years because Michelle's wardrobe has taken over his entire bedroom. And I'm not exaggerating here. There are over 200 dresses, more than 40 wigs, and nearly 100 pairs of shoes. That's a whole lot of drag for a modest one-bedroom apartment. And it sounds like Russell's had enough. Yeah, a recent time I was walking through... The village, and normally she's all for the attention, right? Normally it's, you know, five, ten people stopping you, even in pandemic times, to say, oh, hi, Michelle, who, you know, how's it going? So one day recently she really wasn't feeling it. She wasn't feeling the Michelle vibes, and right? Most people by default call her Michelle. I guess it hit a nerve. She said, that bitch is dead. And yeah, I don't know. I guess she was more, a little bit more Russell that day. <laughs> but uh, it, it, was, it was serious. I don't think it wasn't like a joke for my benefit. It's awful. It's hard to hear. When, when Michelle says stuff like that, it's, it feels like she's almost giving up. Early on in the pandemic, Russell started purging old gowns and makeup and declaring that Michelle was gone, not just retired or in hiding. She was dead, and Russell killed her. So I really think most of it has to do with her not wanting to admit that she can't do it anymore. So in order to not admit that, she'll just 
kill her. But you know, Michelle is Michelle can be very dramatic. Every time she answers the phone, I say, "Hi, dear, how are you?" She says, "I'm alive." So I same, yeah. <laughs> I think that kind of says it all. One time, I went to pick up Michelle at her at her unit, and then we were just going to go for a a walk. Um, and she handed me this big bag, a really big bag of, of a Ziploc bag of makeup it was it was heavy there was so much makeup in it and as we were walking to the elevator she said do you mind throwing this down the garbage chute so I just threw it down the chute little did I know I think that was that bag was Michelle I think that that was like all of Michelle's makeup and I I uh, looking back I think she may have wanted me to say oh no michelle like how like are you crazy you like keep this michelle's got to come you know a little bit of a fight or something but i i didn't realize at the time that that was all of her makeup (laughs) and i tossed it when trevor threw out that bag of makeup he was unwittingly throwing away decades of drag history because for the better part of a century russell has been finding joy in glamour and it all started when he was just nine years old I guess I'd always always loved being being on stage, you know, even as a as a, as a nine year old. Mother mother shoved me out in front of the ladies uh, groups when they came over to play cards, and and I had to do a little song for them, you know. <laughs> I, I used to I used to sing um, cobbler cobbler mend my shoe, you know. Little Russell was fashionable from the beginning. As a kid, one of his favorite things to do was to sketch dresses and shoes and imagine the fabulous women who would wear them. My cousins uh, who lived near Fort Hope, uh, uh, they dressed me up as a nine-year-old boy in a black velvet strapless dress and a little turban. He's so handsome, he's so sweet, but just the same fat boy. Remember, this is the 1950s, and being a boy in a dress in rural Ontario was subversive, even dangerous. But Russell didn't think of those early days as drag. As a child and a teenager, he thought of it more as dressing up. Whatever it was, his father didn't like it. I had one incident where my father was furious with me, and I remember him coming towards me, like, really furious. So my, my father wasn't too happy with my drag test. Maybe he didn't like his son being a, a little queer, you might say. But from the very first moment Russell slipped into that strapless black velvet dress, he knew. He took the first opportunity he could to move to Toronto in his early 20s, found an apartment in the gay village, and never looked back. And here in the village, surrounded by his community, is where Michelle Dubarry started to become a legend. Back in the 70s, Russell co-founded the traveling drag group The Great Imposters with Canadian drag legend Rusty Ryan. Here's Rusty in 1987 introducing a performance. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Rusty Ryan, for those of you who care. We have some people down front who are in drag this evening. The Imposters are here. 
Part vaudeville, part comedy show, the group would often travel to rural Canada, bringing their art into small towns at a time when drag was firmly underground. For many of those communities, seeing the great imposters was their first exposure to drag. Dressing this way has been a, a tradition, actually. Drag has been around for centuries. It's been around so long, in fact, that the uh, Canadian government found that it was fun and deemed it illegal. <laughs> and, uh, as a matter of fact, in the 60s, dressing like this or like that, you could have been arrested. Now I can't even get a cab. <laughs> Initially, Russell performed under the drag persona Anita Moday, but her co-stars felt that Anita wasn't a glamorous enough alter ego. And so from the ashes of Anita Moday, Michelle was born. And her last name, DuBerry, was inspired by the 1943 film DuBerry Was a Lady, starring Lucille Ball and Gene Kelly. They said, Madame DuBerry, Madame, Madame, they said Madame DuBerry. But today, the spotlight has faded. Russell lives a pretty ordinary life in the same second-floor apartment he moved into in 1954. Nowadays, with no internet, computer, or cell phone, he spends most of his time watching the Turner Classic Movie Channel. Shall we look at these uh, batteries? Did you get it to work? Your, uh, your remote? Here. Thank you. Yeah, see, that seems to... Well, I mean... What's a, what's, what's a channel that you normally like? Can you go to that to see if that, if that works? Like, what's your uh, TCM or whatever? Do you know what number that is? No, I don't it's like real life. Russell has real life problems. And when you're with Michelle, it's just sort of... Michelle doesn't have to pay bills or Michelle doesn't have to, you know, do any of that kind of real life stuff. You should have heard the other day, James, Russell said, I'm jealous of Michelle. She kind of repeated that a couple of times. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about. I think... Because um, Russell chose to be Michelle for so long and to use that uh, um, power and that glamour or whatever for so long, she was focused on keeping that going for so long that she never made a life for Russell. She was too busy being Michelle to bury. Michelle DuBerry has lived a long and exciting life, but it's been a lonely one too. I know, she, she mentions that she's lonely quite a bit. And she mentions to me quite a bit, mentions to Trevor quite a bit, you know, you're lucky, you both have partners. Sure, she's had exciting love affairs and relationships over the years, but she's never found a partner to settle down with long-term. Instead, she found this beautiful friendship with James and Trevor. They give each other emotional support, celebrate the good times, and like so many other families, navigate life's hardships together. And I've noticed in the last three, four years that she did, she aged rapidly. And what I mean by that is uh, she's not as steady on her feet. She's not quite as quick, energetic. So um, I have seen a little bit um, of a depletion in energy and uh, maybe a little bit more melancholy than she had been in the previous years. Trevor and James have seen Russell fading in the last year. 
It's a problem that so many families with seniors have been confronted with during COVID. Loneliness can be debilitating for any senior, and for queer seniors, the effect can be even more pronounced. When you mix that with over a year of isolation due to the global pandemic, it can mean a shift in memory, mood, and even personality. James and Trevor know that the matriarch of their little family thrives when she's out and about in the village as Michelle, something that COVID has taken away. It's been a hard year for Russell, and his friends aren't sure what the future holds for him post-pandemic. To me, Michelle's natural state is Michelle when I think about her. It's not sort of this 89-year-old man. <laughs> it's, it's Michelle DuBerry. So I just have this vision of Michelle coming back and, and, you know, her being comfortable and confident again. But why do you want her to perform again? Like, the old gal's 89. Can't she just retire in peace? <laughs> Michelle is never as alive as she is when she's Michelle. That's when I've seen Michelle at her happiest and most confident, is when she is in full drag. That's when she, and you know, I mean, obviously that is what was most important to her because her, her life was focused on that for the last 60 years. James and Trevor don't want the community and the world to lose Michelle, with her celebrated career just gone and forgotten. But it's not just about her legacy. Russell needs Michelle as much as Michelle needs Russell. One can't live without the other. So when the pandemic is finally over and the bars open up, they want to get Michelle back into drag and back up on stage, where she truly shines. Do you imagine, James, that when, if and when she does come back, it's going to look a bit different? Like it's going to take some help from, from you or, you know, maybe she'll want some help doing her, her makeup for once or something? She wants to take care of herself. She wants to do things on her own. She wants to be able to do things without having to be told. She does not like being told what to do. My grandpa insisted on driving himself everywhere and getting his own groceries until the day he died. So I get it. Michelle may be a trailblazing drag queen, but at the end of the day, she's 89 years old and worried about losing her independence. That's why I wonder whether getting her back up on stage is a realistic goal, especially considering all the evidence. Let's recap. Michelle purged some of her gowns, threw all of her makeup down the garbage chute, and has said Michelle is dead. It doesn't sound promising. At the end of the day, Michelle is the only one who can answer this question. Is there a future for Michelle Dubarry? Your, your friends here have told me they want, would love to see you on stage again, performing. What do you think of that? Do you want to get back on stage and perform? The whole world's a stage, honey. <laughs> but anyway, yes, I love to be... I, I don't want to ever stop, stop being on stage, that's for sure, no. But I don't get that, that much opportunity anymore now. But I, I sit there and hope that uh, they'll ask me, that's all, yeah. <laughs> they usually ask you. They'll ask. Oh my gosh, of course they will ask. In the time we've been talking, I've heard Russell share some of the same stories more than once, or forget what we were talking about. There's no shame. He's almost 90 and has been living alone for more than a year. The occasional confusion is understandable. 
Fortunately, his friends James and Trevor are there to help. That's part of what taking care of an aging family member is all about. Offering love and compassion, despite the ups and downs and inevitable disagreements. Stepping in to fill the gaps on daily tasks they can no longer take care of on their own. But it's making me realize just how important Michelle is to Russell. And why his friends want so badly to keep Michelle around. For Russell, being Michelle DeBerry isn't just a hobby or a profession. It's his very existence. It gives him purpose, a reason to get up in the morning. And James and Trevor worry that, without Michelle, Russell himself might just fade away. And I keep thinking back to that story Trevor told me. When he was walking down the street, and Russell... She said, that bitch is dead. I want to follow up on that and see what Russell has to say. I heard there was talk of killing that bitch Michelle. Was that all for fun and jokes? Somebody joking, right? Somebody, somebody was joking. Oh, I think it was you. Oh, did I say that? I think so. Oh, maybe me, Russell, I'm envious of Michelle. I think that's very possible. It's just a, a part of me. It's, it's, it's just me. It's who you enjoy being. Yeah. You always like being Michelle. I like being dressed up. I guess I feel like a, feel like a woman when I get dressed up, I guess. <laughs> when you sit down and you slap on the face... Uh, that means putting on makeup, slapping on a face. You can't stop doing that, so you gotta you got to let the bitch out. Uh, uh, right? Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, part of, uh, part of drag is the transformation. It's becoming somebody else. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, that's, I don't know, it's like a superpower. It's freeing. Russell hasn't been able to let Michelle out in a long time, so it's been a while since he felt those superpowers. That could explain all this talk of killing Michelle. James, who, after all, has known Michelle for over 10 years, thinks it's probably a combination of things. COVID has been difficult for so many of us, especially for seniors like Russell. He's spent over a year isolated and without the same busy social schedule he was accustomed to. You know, the COVID and the end of the world coming I think all of that sort of affected her mentally, and she was in a dark place for a while. Maybe it's all the hard work it takes to get into drag, and being too proud to ask for help. I don't think she feels she can do her eye makeup anymore. That's my guess. And, you know, to be honest with you, that's the one thing I have the most trouble with. It could be Russell looking for validation and reassurance. For his community to rally around him and say, we need Michelle Dubarry. Don't kill her. Life is, uh, life is difficult, and uh, as we get to the end of the road, I think people start feeling forgotten. And I think that's sort of where Michelle is, and I would like to see Michelle's last years being not forgotten. For my part, I'm with James and Trevor. I truly hope we haven't seen the last of Michelle Dubarry. When the world opens back up and we flock back to the village for drinks and drag shows, I hope we'll see Michelle up on stage, shining as bright as ever. If Michelle was to have one final performance, it would probably be at Woody's. Oh, it's so nice to think about. I would probably be at night, you know, in her honor. She would certainly be doing 
we should be kind. We can be kind. What's the song called, James? We can be kind. We can be kind. I want Michelle to perform again because I want to see that joy and that sparkle in her eyes again one more time. I feel like you're a caged bird in your apartment. And then when you're dressed as Michelle and you come out, you're free in the world. Thank God. Thank God, I mean, as far as dressing up, I got, I got this uh, total room full of closets, uh, of dresses and, and shoes and bags and all that stuff. And no, and no bed in the bedroom. So you don't get any, don't, don't get any action that way, of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I, 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 miss, I miss the drag, the drag scene, that's for sure. Yeah. It's a good message song to an audience. We can be kind, we can take care of each other, you know. Yeah. We Can Be Kind is off the 1995 Nancy Lamott album, Listen to My Heart. It's been Michelle's go-to performance song for the past several years. That doc was produced by Jeffrey Vallis. It was edited and mixed by Andrew Friesen with Jennifer Warren. Coming up, the story of a woman who sang her way to Canada in 1938. Sit tight. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1920s, in Guangzhou, China, a little girl named Gai Yin started singing Cantonese opera. I remember thinking it was like incredibly dramatic, like the drums and the music. It's like, um, yeah, it's like not a casual music that you listen to. This is Julia Hune Brown. Hi, I'm Julia. I'm a theater artist and teacher in Toronto. And Guy Yin was Julia's grandmother. This recording isn't her singing, but she would have sounded something like this. Did you like it? I like was intrigued by it, but also like it felt very unfamiliar. She was a force, and she was really, like, confident, which, like, as a little kid, I really admired. Gayin wasn't just a singer. She was a trailblazer, a risk-taker, 
and she changed her family's destiny, possibly even saved their lives, all because she could sing Cantonese opera. I mean, her story is like a family legend. It's something that we talk a lot about. It's something that's like very ingrained in our family culture when we talk about our our family and our history. Julia will take it from here. The story begins almost a century ago, in Guangzhou, in southern China, where my grandmother grew up. My grandfather had the means to send his daughters to school, and he did. But my mother always said he wasn't much of a family man. Uh, and you had to pay school tuition to go to school. This is my mum, Bernice Hune, talking about her mother, my grandmother. One day, the um, schoolmaster or something said that the fees weren't paid up. And uh, my mother felt embarrassed by it all, because she I think this probably had happened more than once. And so she decided, I'm not going to ask that my father for that again. I'm just going to go to work. And so she went to work in the opera company as a performer. My mom tells me that a member of my grandma's household already performed in the opera. This is my Aunt Shirley, my grandma's eldest daughter. Your great-grandfather had tea houses where people would uh, go and sing Cantonese opera. So she hung out at these tea houses uh, because that's where her father worked. And uh, some of the women who sang there took her under their wing and said, oh, we will uh, teach you songs and we will dress you up. <laughs> and, uh, and we need someone to pay th- play this little servant, you know. And so she just kind of hung around on the wings and followed people around and was then kind of tutored and trained. The 1930s were supposedly the heyday of Cantonese opera, particularly in Guangzhou. It was an incredibly popular art form. It incorporated music, dancing, acrobatics, and these really ornate costumes. Aside from providing my grandma with income, it also gave her literacy, which she craved. She was not able to go to school past the third grade, but she learned how to read Cantonese characters by memorizing opera scores. Cantonese opera also ended up providing her with an opportunity that would change her life and the lives of the rest of my family forever. She was invited to join a troupe organized by the Chinese Canadian Freemasons to tour Canada. They would be performing in Chinatowns across the country. This is my aunt again. The first time they came and asked if mom and maybe a couple of friends would come to Canada, my grandmother, which is your great grandmother, said, no, you're too young. But the next year when they came back, her mother had changed her mind because she had a new concern. This is my mom. The Japanese were invading China, and her mother said to her, if you have an opportunity to tour again, you must take it. This is an opportunity for, for you to leave the country. It was 1938. Japan and China were at war. The conflict had started a year earlier. The opera tour was her ticket to safety. So she said yes to her spot in the company, signing up for the next year. My grandma was only 19 years old. And the story was that when they were saying goodbye to each other, they were weeping, they were crying, and we never might see each other again, and all this uh, 
because who knew at that time? It was a three-weeks' journey to cross the Pacific in those days. You didn't easily say goodbye to people, expect to see them so readily. So that's how they parted. So on September 23rd, 1938, my grandmother left China via Hong Kong. I only found out recently how close she came to not getting out at all. A month after she left, her city, Guangzhou, fell to Japan. She could have been on one of the last boats out. My grandmother sailed across the ocean on the famous Empress of Russia, to what her community calls Gamsan, Gold Mountain, to what is known to many indigenous people as Turtle Island, to what European settlers call Canada. Do you know where this photo was taken? It was taken on the, um, how do we call it, the docks of Vancouver. Okay. But, um, yeah, I, I, you wonder who that is. I love Chinese the image, skip. also because it's like these, like, four, like, very beautiful Cantonese women, and then all these sort of... Well, I'm going through some old photos with my Aunt Shirley. She pauses over a photograph of Gayan arriving in Vancouver with her troop. This photo has always fascinated me. Four Chinese women looking so triumphant, so bold, beautiful. But don't they look like proud and happy women? Yeah, and they also and just like look like a, very brave. Like yeah, Grandma brave, looks very yeah, like, yeah. okay, I'm ready for this. Like yeah, 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 but it's like life is a new adventure. This group of bright, proud faces. I wonder if they knew how incredible it was that they even made it into Canada. So when she came, it was during the exclusion years, which was between 1923 and 1947. And so she's come on a sort of, I'm presuming, like a cultural visa of some sort. Well, uh, so exclusion happened in 1923, and then for the next 24 years, officially less than 50 people enter Canada. Let me repeat that. Between 1923 and 1947, only 50 Chinese immigrants were allowed to enter. My grandmother was probably not included in that number. The exclusion my mother is referring to is a law that the Canadian government put in place to ban virtually all Chinese immigration. In 1886, right after the Canadian Pacific Railway was completed, using Chinese labor, the Canadian government introduced the Chinese head tax. It was a hefty fee put on Chinese people entering the country to try to discourage Chinese immigration. It was often a massive debt that a man on low wages would spend years paying off. Then, in 1923, Chinese immigration to Canada was banned outright, with the exception of diplomats, students, and government representatives. It is unclear under which category, if any, my grandmother and her troop fell. But what I do know is that because of these racist laws, families were separated for years. The Chinese community was also uneven, a kind of bachelor society with many more men than women. Only 7% of the Chinese population were women. In Toronto in 1931, there were 1,240 men to only 100 women. So you can imagine the arrival of a group of Chinese women right in the middle of the exclusion period must have been quite the event, to say the least. I was thinking about, like, what, for Grandma, I was wondering if she knew what she was getting into when they said, come to Canada and you can sing in this opera. Like, I always wondered, like, if she knew, like, what 
to expect. It takes a lot of courage to leave your own environment, to go to a strange country, a language you don't understand, and just hope that you know everything would turn out the way you want it to. Mm-hmm. Of course, when you're young, you feel you can do anything. Mm. <laughs> you know, you can conquer the world. Mm. Mm. Can you just introduce yourself? What's your name? <laughs> Who, myself? Yeah. You are Aunt Nora, but also known as Nora. Nora Hum. <laughs> <laughs> can you say it just one I'm more time? I'm grandmother's best friend. <laughs> she was like a sister to me, and I was like a young sister to her. Yeah. We got along beautifully. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. My Aunt Nora was my grandmother's oldest friend. She lives in Montreal, where her father helped host the opera company, when they came to town for the first time in 1939. When they met, Gallien was 20. Nora was just 10 years old. Do you remember seeing her perform ever? Oh, yes, yes. We all, you know, she was very um, artistic, you know, in her appearance and her gestures and so forth. But she didn't have a very strong voice for Mm. opera, you know. But I think she just liked the idea of being there and being an actress mm. and doing what she liked to do. And that was acting, you know, and singing, mm. you know. So she managed very well, I think. It's like a pantomime that they play out. It's like, it's like the operas that they have, you know, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody has a part to play. But in, in a Chinese opera, it's mostly costume and sort of make-believe and that sort of thing, mm. you know. I try to imagine what it must have looked and sounded like. They visited all the major cities across Canada, anywhere there was a Chinatown. My Aunt Nora tells me that they didn't play big opera houses, but community halls, small clubs, vaudeville theatres. They were jam-packed, sometimes standing room only. The whole Chinese community would be there. Whole families, babies, children, chatting, eating snacks, drinking tea. People would come and go for their favorite parts, while the singers kept performing for hours. This was one of the few leisure activities Chinese people had in Canada, in their own language, and a welcoming space. The society was quite uh, segregated, Uh, removed at that time. People didn't leave Chinatown because they didn't feel welcome outside of Chinatown. So there there wasn't, um, I think you wanted songs and stories that were familiar to you. There wasn't much to do. You could play cards a bit. I mean, they worked long hours at doing things. And I I think when the opera came, you got the money to go. In Cantonese opera, there are a number of archetypes that appear over and over again, regardless of the opera. My mother tells me that my grandmother would have played the Fadan, or Yi Fadan, a young unmarried woman. She might have sounded like this archival recording from the Canadian Museum of History. But 
But after over a year of touring across Canada, it was time for the cast of the show to make a decision. And I do know that there was a big argument among the performers uh, at, after the tour ended about whether to go back to China or to stay. Okay. I heard much later that those that decided to go back were years later sorry for it. We didn't know it at that time, but then China was going to become a communist country. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of unrest. My grandmother decided to settle in Toronto, where there was a larger Chinatown. She continued to perform and travel. The opera was as popular as ever. I asked both my mom and my aunt how she was allowed to stay in Canada. The exclusion policies were still in place when the tour ended. No one seemed to have a clear answer. But by this time, World War II had started. I imagine, in the chaos, no one was keeping track. My grandmother boarded with other families in Toronto's Chinatown. The opera was still her base for community. When she came to Montreal to perform, she would stay with her best friend Nora's family. Nora often jokes about all the dates my grandmother went on in the city of so-called bachelors. I remember her taking me out to lunch with her where she was meeting with some men from these clubs. How, how old are you? are you? I think I was only about 10 or 11 <laughs> or something, you know. So I went with her, and uh, they were all men, except for her and myself. Mm. But it was later that I realized that she wanted a chaperone. To not and be alone with all <laughs> Exactly, with all those men. My grandmother ended up meeting and marrying a Canadian-born Chinese man in Toronto, my grandfather, Don Hyun. He was born and raised in Vancouver, but had lived in China as a young man. So he had two major attributes. This is my mum. Well, first of all, my father was uh, a good-looking man. But more than that, he had spent um, several years in China, and it made him completely bilingual. The... um, he was literate in Chinese and English, and I think, I think that appealed to my, my mother, who, well, she needed someone who could, uh, she could have long conversations with in Chinese, but also who could maneuver in the outside world. They married, they started a family, and in the early years, my grandmother still performed. And so I perf- saw her perform the opera a few times, up to about the age of 10, and then she wasn't my mother. She was someone else on stage. And uh, my younger brother was really impressed when my mother would whirl across the room, throw a sword up in the air, and bounce it off her extended foot and pick it up again. But I love the ribbon dance. That ribbon dance you see, she could do that, fly across the room with it. My Aunt Shirley also remembers seeing her mom perform. I would be backstage, I'd be four or five or something, and there was one scene where she was being chased. Okay. You know, she was running around like a maid, being, being either she was being like swatted at by somebody, it might have even been the leading lady who was been beating the maid for not, you know, behaving properly, yeah. or you know, you bad girl, etc. So, or it was, a, or a man was chasing. I don't know. I just remember 
crying. Uh, <laughs> I was worried about That's crying. I would say something like, "You're beating my mom." I said in Chinese, "Ni And I'm going like this, and because I remember Grandma coming into the wings and just hugging me, and she says. It's just a story, you know. You know, my We're just making it up. It's just a story, and I just remember that as a kid, you know. Yeah, yeah we're just making. It's not real. Nobody's beating me. <laughs> By the time she had four kids, my grandma only performed on special occasions, but she held on to something from those years on the stage something that has also become part of family legend. We lived at 66 Elm Street, and so when Mom and Dad got married, uh, your grandparents, they rented one of the floors there. And then Mm. one day, um, your grandfather came home and said, oh, the landlord is going to sell this house. And um, he said, I wish I had the money to buy it. Mm. And Grandma says, I have money. You know, and it's so, like all my country's opera money. Yeah, I know. I have money. Okay. All those years while she was performing in the opera, Gayin was squirreling away her salary, entrusting it to an elder in the Chinese community for safekeeping. And so she and this, she helped all of it, part of it, down payment. Mm. They bought that building. So that that was kind of the way that started. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty like. I think it would, like, it's amazing. The Cantonese opera and... Like, provided this house. Thanks to my grandmother, my grandparents and their young family thrived in Chinatown, in a house they owned. This was a big deal. Owning a house on Elm Street gave them security at a time when many landlords wouldn't rent to Chinese people. And all of this changed not only her life, but the course of our entire family. This is my aunt again. If she had not acquired the skills for a Cantonese opera. Mm. I mean, think about it. How could you leave China at that time when there were exclusion acts? She had that skill that she had, and she then it was her ticket out. And because of that, and then because she married your grandfather, we she formed a family yeah. in the. But also, she was able to then sponsor her mother, her grandmother, who said, we're all going to die. My grandmother's city was bombed during the war with Japan. She helped by sending home money to her family, but she couldn't do much else. Until 1947, which is when the Exclusion Act was finally lifted. And so actually, uh, Grandma saved her entire family. Because then she brought her sister, who was older, she really worked at bringing her family, and then she worked at bringing her younger uh, brother, Kelf, your younger too, brother yeah. and all his children. And but it, it's really the uh, she was the first foothold yeah. in, and was and able also to, to be do like it. an eighteen-year-old woman being the first yes, foothold. Yeah, it's yeah. very unique. Like you, it's you very unique. Often hear stories of like a man came, he worked hard, he brought his wife. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. It's very rare to hear like a woman came, she worked hard, and then she, she brought, bought a house, and then she brought her whole family. Yeah, like it feels. It's, it's different, but yeah. also the, the key was the Cantonese opera. Yeah. Gayan has had a big impact on my family, especially the women. My mother, Bernice Hoon, became an artist and storyteller, and she tells the story of Chinese-Canadian women in her art. My Aunt Shirley became a professor of Asian-American history. 
I'm also a community-engaged artist and teacher. Education was very important to my grandmother. Partly, I think, because it was denied to her in China. My grandmother passed away just before I went to university. She was 83. But Gayan made sure to leave money to help me with my tuition, and my aunt has recently established a scholarship in my grandparents' name at the University of Toronto. And to think so much of this is thanks to Cantonese opera. An art form that allowed my family to make a life in Canada. That story was produced by Julia Hewn-Brown and Allison Cook. It was edited by Julia Poggle. It was originally broadcast in December of 2019. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Andrew Friesen, Allison Cook, Sherry Okeke, Tanera McLean, Kent Hoffman, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.